0: Our reading is from the book of Genesis, chapter 4. Now Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had no regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering. He had regard for Abel in his offering, but for Cain in his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born a rod, and Arad fathered Mahujel, and Mahujel fathered Methushel, and Methushel fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of one was Ada, and the name of the other, Zillah. Ada bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and the pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Nama. The word of the Lord.
1: Good morning. Good morning. Good morning on a very fluid morning. It's nice to see you all. some of y'all know who, who I know have been out of town are back. so again, good morning. Um, let's pray. Dear God, we gather together on this day with just the hint of fall, a little cooler air that is such a joy. And we ask you for more than a hint of your love and your Holy Spirit to be with us. We are in the season, as Johnny just reminded us, of Pentecost when you sent the Holy Spirit to give us strength to live in the world and to bear witness to you. And so we come to gather and ask for help in knowing how to do that, to understand how much you are with us and to understand the world in a way that your eyes give us insight. So we submit to you. And ask for your help in your name. Amen. Sorry, I'm moaning a bit. Let's see if I can do that. Well, again, good morning. How many of you uh, head to school this week? Some of you probably headed off to college or sending someone to college. How many of you are sending someone to college this week? Great, I'm sending two to college this week, so I get it. How many of you will be starting school in a couple weeks? Some of you may How many of you are starting school in this building in a couple weeks? Yeah, let's pray you guys? So. Um, big things, right? Like summer, It's it's fall is coming. Again, particularly the last couple of days as the morning has been less hot. You know, it's been so hot the last few weeks. It's been so nice to go out and have it be a little less hot. Um, and this summer, again, you've been in the book. You start a journey in Genesis that will take you all the way to Advent, to Christmas. And we spent uh, several times together. I've been here three times. This is now four, talking about This book and what I said again way back in early June was my encouragement for you is to see the invitation this summer was courage. That some of the scholars as they look at this book have said again that the, the real purpose of Genesis is to invite you to trust God more. The same God we read about here when your immediate historical experience begs your trust. So if you're here this morning thinking I'm about to go to school or college and I don't want to or I'm scared... Again, I encourage you, take courage as we look at this passage this morning. Or maybe you're feeling daunted about sending loved ones to college or about school coming. Again, the invitation from Genesis is courage. Most of the summer, you have been just in the first two chapters, right? You spent most of your time in Genesis 1 and 2. Two weeks ago, we wrapped up Genesis 2 together. We looked again at this parallel account of creation, Genesis 1 and 2 It's such a big deal, creation, such a big deal. We need fully two narratives, two stories to help us get some idea of how fabulous it is. And we saw again in that chapter, God speaking, crafting our dignity and purpose. The real pinnacle again being Eve's creation and the song that Adam sung as Eve was presented to him. And I encourage you to think about a particular theme about whether you and I think about the world the way Genesis 2 encourages us to, which is, am I theocentric, starting with God, and am I theomorphic, creating in God's image, or am I anthropocentric, I'm the authority of my life, and anthropomorphic, God's created in my image. Genesis 1 and 2 beat a drum again and again. You and I are theocentric people, and you and I are theomorphic people. My wife and I were, were riveted by this in graduate school and seminary, so much so that our invitations to our wedding started in light of God's grace and mercy. Because even in our wedding, we want to remind ourselves, that's where we start. Created in God's image. So we finished Genesis 2, and everything was great, right? What we said last week was, it's all good, so great, woohoo!" But then... The story keeps going and we went through Genesis 3 last week and we saw the tragedy of our breaking that creation. We chose ourselves, right? Genesis 3 is about Adam and Eve and you and me deciding we are anthropocentric, anthropomorphic people. I know what's best for myself. I start with me. What do I feel, think, want? Remember this haunting question that one scholar gave us that we sums up Eve and Adam and ourselves. How can God be good and not give me the person or thing or position or experience that I deem essential to my happiness? You and, are, you and I are always invited to that question by the world, the flesh, and the devil, right? How can God be good and not give me what I want? And we saw what happens when we give in to that question and we pursue our own way, right? We saw our responsibility the brokenness of the world, and yet God's still steady grace and provision for us at the end of chapter three. As we move on, Genesis 4 today and Genesis 7 and Genesis 12 and Genesis 26, you're gonna see those two themes are still with us. The steadfast implications of creation, living in a world full of God's vibrancy, and the steadfast implications of the fall. And I was thinking this week, it doesn't take much probably for you or me to go, oh, I know that. I know that's true. I can think of things. I want you to take a second and think. What are steadfast implications of the creation of living in a world of God's vibrancy that you love? Great things, good things. If we were to go around, and again, it's something you could do at lunch or this week with friends or in a small group. I made a little list for myself. Fruit pie of any kind. Gingerbread, some of you know that about me. Water, in the heat of the last, I said in the right amounts. Puppies, friendship, coffee beans and cocoa beans, creativity, music, men and women, fertility and new things. So like school clothes, who gets excited about going to get new school clothes? New things starting. Our family is a big Premier League soccer family. Premier League started last week. You could feel the energy in our house. Woo! Implications and consequences of creation. They're around us, right? It doesn't take you long to come up with things you love. But we're also surrounded with implications and consequences of the fall. And again, this would be something to talk about. Things that are hard or difficult about the world for you that you don't like or that you feel the burden about. They're painful. I made a list of those too. Cats. (laughs) Not a big cat first. Someone hissed, thank you, I get that. Brussels sprouts. Not a big fan of Brussels sprouts. Mosquitoes. There's literally no value for mosquitoes. Utter fall. Racism, sexism, ageism. Too much Water. Floods, spiders, crabs. My brother and I drove across country from California to the East Coast when we were in college and spent the summer with friends here working and doing other things. And we lived in Maryland, and you can't live in Maryland without going to see family friends. You have all these family friends of my parents, and everybody served us crabs. And they were so delighted because Maryland loves crabs. I do not like crabs. I was like, oh, crabs, Yay! Creation and the fall. It's clear that God's grace is still stitched in the fallen world and in the midst of these things. And as we walk through Genesis, you're gonna see as God is teaching us the who and the why about the world, which is what Genesis is for. And to invite your courage, we're gonna see these two themes again and again. In the words of Dickens, it's the best of times and it's still the worst of times. And you see that in our passage this morning. If you don't have it open, I'd encourage you to open it now. And again, thank you. To our sister who read that passage, that was a lot of names. What's happening in Genesis 4? We've moved on from Genesis 3. Adam and Eve are still there, and they have a baby. They have a baby. It's pretty amazing for them, right? Like they didn't first baby ever. They're excited, and so they name this baby Cain, which means to get or to create. And Eve's words in that passage are still, she's both honoring God, but taking a little bit of credit. God and I have brought about this man. And Cain grows up and is like his dad. He's a farmer. He tills the land. Then they have another baby, right? Whose name is? Abel. Abel means surprise or vapor or nothingness. And you get a sense that they thought, well, we have one. Oh, my gosh, we're having another. And Abel grows up, right? And he's Cain's brother, and he is a shepherd. They're they're taking on these roles in creation. It is amazing. It's the seed that we heard about in chapter 3. You must think that Adam and Eve felt like, oh, here's the the legacy. Maybe the the guy who's going to crush the head of the snake. Wouldn't that be exciting? And God is still around so much so that they are interacting with God and Cain and Abel bring a offering, right? They bring an offering to God. The Hebrew here is a tribute. They bring a tribute to the king. But there's a contrast in the tributes, right? What's the contrast? You get the sense that Cain brings an offering, fruits, maybe it's fruit pie, I don't know. But it's some fruits, right? And it probably wouldn't have been as big a deal. God would have understood if Abel hadn't come, his brother, and brought what kind of fruits? Metaphoric, they're probably sheep and cow. First fruits. And you get a sense here that Abel is, is grateful. He's intentional. He's theocentric and theomorphic as compared to maybe anthropocentric and anthropomorphic. Some of the things we often say as Anglicans before communion, you could, or for our offering, you could see him saying, All things come of thee, O Lord, and of thine own, have I given you. You sense that is his heart. How many of you have a brother or a sister? How many of you have ever felt upstaged by your brother or sister? The other half of you didn't raise your hands. We know you did. How did you feel? What would it feel like? Even if you did something you really felt good about, you know, you're like, I'm going to give God something, and then Abel shows up. You can relate a little bit to what Cain felt. Now, I've read this passage for years, and if you'd asked me how this passage rolls out, I would have said, Cain and Abel bring an offering. Cain gets mad. Cain kills Abel. This week, as I read through the text... What I saw and was reminded of was that's not the flow of the story. Cain and Abel bring an offering. Cain gets mad. And what happens next? Remember from what we just heard? God shows up. God shows up with Cain. It says, hey, basically calls his bluff. I know you're mad at Cain or your brother Abel. I know you're mad at me. But hey, sin's crouching at your door. Own it. Repent. Implications of creation and grace, implications of the fall. Boy, wouldn't it have been great if Cain had been like, You're right. I blew it. That's my fault. That's on me. Please forgive me, God. I won't do that again. God's love is so loving and direct, sin is crouching at your door. Instead, what happens? Cain quickly kills his brother, then denies it flippantly to God, and then is banned and exiled, and cries out in his pain and his aloneness. And what we believe there is he's repentant, and God still provides grace, this marker both a stain and a protection. No one will hurt you, but you're still exiled. just follow on. what is going on these things these themes are still happening so I want to unpack I just want to look at some of the implications of the fall some of the implications of creation and the hope we have as we look at this passage for ourselves because I do think it it beckons in the same way God beckoned to Cain so first some implications of the fall that we experience today that we see in this text Here in Genesis 4, we find the implication of the fall that now we have pain and broken relationships in families. Clearly, we already had it between Adam and Eve, the husband and wife. But now you see this stain has spread out into families, into siblings. And again, I doubt I need to convince any of you that that is the case in the world. I bet in this room, if we told stories, there are siblings or parents or aunts or uncles or sisters-in-law, or brothers-in-law, and on and on, where there is estrangement because of worship, because of someone doing something that hurts somebody, because of the difficulty of forgiving and owning our own mess. This is one Old Testament scholar. To live in God's world on God's terms is enough of a problem. We saw that in Genesis 3. Just you and God is hard enough, right? But to live with God's other creatures, specifically human creatures, is more of a dilemma. Isn't that an understated truth? These sentences about Cain are so painfully insightful. His offering is not as heartfelt, it's clear. He's not as thankful. He doesn't bring his best to God. But God gives him a chance to repent and be made whole. And he ignores that chance. Why? Again, I hope you see yourself painfully in this text. Because isn't it easier to blame someone else than look at yourself? It's Abel's fault. He should have told me that's what he was bringing. We're both coming to offer at the same place. Why would he make me look bad before God? He should have told me. It's easier to make it someone else's fault. It's easier to be mad at God. How can God love me and not give me What I deem to be essential to my happiness. Can't you hear the echo of the Beatitudes here? Jesus saying, to hate is like murder. Because I think God knew Cain already was hating Abel when he confronted him and wanted to prevent him and give him a chance to not commit the act of murder. This is a quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. This is so insightful on this text. Murder is an act of hatred toward God for making or accepting another person who offends us or troubles us or is favored with gifts and honored in a way we don't have or who stands in our way. Murder is an act of hatred toward God first for making or accepting somebody else who offends us or troubles us or is favored with gifts and honor in a way we haven't been or stands in our way. I've shared this image before of, one of a former colleague of mine with InterVarsity who describes the kingdom as pie, gospel pie. Again, this whole sermon is about pie. Um, and what she said is often how, the way you and I see God is that there's a finite amount of pie and if if I'm a, in this community and I see Rod Nunez get some gospel pie, it makes me anxious or angry. Because why? Because if Rod's getting gospel pie, I might, there might be less pie for me. And then I might be mad at God or mad at Rod. I might not even know Rod. I do know Rod. But I might, I might see Rod get gospel pie in some way, an affirmation or God heals something in him or, or he's been faithful to something and he gets a new job or provide a house that he built, something, all those things that we can get torqued up about. And what we assume is, well, only so much pie God's got to go around. If he gets pie, I don't get enough pie. That's what Cain's doing. And it's just a sw- simple step from there to anger and to murder and to self-justication and to making it their problem, not your own. Particularly And families. So maybe you're here this morning and you feel tension with someone in your family, and you might want to allow this verse to sift over you. Allow this story. Say, is there? have, Have I made somebody able because they got something and I didn't, and I'm mad? Second, there's a clear implication of the fall in this chapter, that our worship informs our ethics. I talked about this some last week because it's really clear in Genesis two and three as well. What we believe is our theology, what we believe, leads to our doxology, who we worship, or what we worship, which guides and informs our ethics. That's the flow of a scholar I've mentioned several times now, Bruce Waltke. Your theology guides your doxology and doxology guides your ethics. If I believe that I'm theocentric and theomorphic, that's gonna inform my doxology, my worship, and it'll inform how I live. If I believe the world starts with me and I'm anthropocentric and anthropomorphic, then that'll inform my worship and doxology and that'll inform my ethics and how I choose to live. The easiest summary of this text is Dr. Waltke's line, Cain failed first at the altar and then he failed in the field. If you want to understand Genesis 4, just memorize that sentence. Cain failed first at the altar, and then he failed in the field. And what that means for you and me is if we fail at the altar, we will fail in the field as well. Who did Cain worship? Himself. And he failed. So again, I would encourage you to think about who do I worship? Where do I start with my understanding of myself? What's noteworthy in the chapter is to watch some of what happens in the life of his mother. I mentioned how Eve describes the birth of Cain. God and I have made a man. She's even using the term man there like Adam as if she made a man like God made in Genesis 2. In a minute, I'm gonna talk about what she says at the end of Genesis 4 and how she what her own spiritual formation in this area. But Cain fails at the altar, then he fails in the field. You will fail in the field if you fail at the altar. Your theology will inform your doxology and your ethics. The third painful implication of the fall in this chapter we see is again now we live with anger and hostility and vengeance. The reading this morning finished at verse 22. On the cusp of Lamech, one of Cain's descendants, talking about his own acts and how he engaged the world. I want to read the verses right after the reading to you this morning. This is Lamech's sort of song to his wives over his anger and vengeance. Adda and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me and a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's Revenge is 77-fold. Cain's revenge is seven-fold. Lamech's is 77-fold. What we see here is the degeneration now of anger and vengeance and hostility that is, again, stitched into the world. It's the worst of times and the best of times. The downward spiral is embodied in Lamech in his song to his wives. You hear first there's polygamy now. Adam had one wife, and Lamech has two. There's murder, and there's boasting and vengeance in such a way that now we write a song about it. And you got to wonder what his wives thought. Oh, great, thanks. And it's a long way from the song that Adam sang over his wife Eve at the end of chapter two. It's a long downward way to getting Lamech now singing a new song of vengeance to his two wives in chapter four. Again, if you're staging this out as a play, these scenes almost tell themselves. So again, there are terrible implications of our choices when they're against God's way, when our theology and dexology are wrong. But there's also a second set of implications that give hope even in this fallen world and again guide some of how you and I can think about how to live now. First, look, the first implication of creation is creation. There is life. People are having babies. Kids are coming. Don't take it for granted. There's literal life happening. New people. It's amazing. If you've seen a newborn or been a part of someone giving birth, it's amazing, really. Do not take it for granted. There's also going to be, as we see at the end of chapter 3, and you will celebrate in a couple weeks, spiritual new babies. You're going to have baptisms as a church in a couple weeks. And what you celebrate there is very similar to what you see here. Physically, you're celebrating spiritually. It just wouldn't say, and Susan bore so-and-so, and and Jesus birthed so-and-so, and and then Jesus birthed so-and-so, and and then Jesus birthed so-and-so. Life. God has stitched spiritual and physical life into this world. It is coming for us. It's there. Be encouraged. Second, then, in this really unique way, the fallen people of God's creation of this covenant family are still living in a joyous way into their vocation as God's image. We have moved from gardening and shepherding at the beginning of the chapter to the children of Lamech creating all these certain skills There's dignity and original purpose, but they are making sense of the world. They are making culture. Again, to quote Andy Crouch and the Mars Hill group out of Charlottesville, they're making sense of the world. Here again, what Lamech's kids, we just covered who Lamech was, right? You'd think his kids would be a nightmare. Mr. 70 times seven. Just so you know, that is where Jesus gets the math of how often you and I forgive from the Gospels. He's saying, how many times did you forgive? You should be the anti-Lamech. But his sons bring forth this amazing cultural creativity and energy. They're descending spiritually, but ascending culturally. Animal husbandry, technology and industry, the arts. It's our first affirmation of the arts in the Bible. These children of this angry guy are still so in God's creative, fertile world that they're using the way they're created in God's image to to create things that bless people. Technology, industry, the arts, gardening, shepherding, animal husbandry, all these things that still happen today, remarkable. Implication of creation. And then lastly, there's an implication of creation and grace because we see again, That God's grace is embedded in this world in pursuing you and me and even Lamech and Cain and even Abel's life in the honoring of him and over and over and over. We see God pursuing Cain as we've touched on. He invites Cain the same way he invited Adam and Eve to repent, these simple questions. But again, listen then to the end of the chapter. We didn't read this. This is about this couple who watched a son kill a son. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a name was born, and he called his name Enosh. And at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. There's another son. There's another son. Seth means granted. God has granted me. And you can hear in Eve's words that she's not saying God and I brought forth a man anymore. What she's saying is God granted me a son. All things come of thee, O Lord, including Seth, the son granted to me. She's moved in a deep way to being much more theocentric and theomorphic. And what does Seth bring into the world? What's he known for? He's not a shepherd, and he's not a farmer. At least that's not what he's known for, although I bet he did those things. And he's not engaging more culture because culture doesn't save. Culture's an expression of how we live it in the world as God's people, but it's not saving. Seth brings worship at this time people began to call on the name of the Lord. What he's marked by, what his family's marked by, is worship. And there's the implication in this of Seth is calling on the name of the Lord from his sense of weakness. And it's so striking because as you've descended through the line of Cain, you get these people, particularly Lamech, who are asserting vengeance and power. And yet over here is Seth, Cain's brother, But what he's asserting is dependence and worship and crying out to the name of the Lord. So as we finish and as we turn to communion, again, just a couple questions for you to think about. In light of these implications, how should you and I live? We get a chance in the world to to decide. Do we want to be like Cain or Lamech? Or do we want to be like Seth? Yes, we live in a world that has implications of the fall. You don't need me to convince you that. But yes, you live in a world that's been created and redeemed and you've been placed to call on the name of the Lord, to lead out like Seth, to push back the darkness in our worship and in our use of gifts for others. Because where Cain failed at the altar, Seth succeeds at the altar. Now, often as we finish, when I'm with you, I pray and I pray for you. But what I'd like to do is pray sort of together to give you some space to pray. will give you some silence and then I'll close. And I'd like you to think about, is there something or someone where you need God's help or you need to call in the name of the Lord in a deep way as you think about heading into the fall? where you feel the temptation to be like Cain or Lamech. Maybe you've been hurt. Maybe you've been legitimately hurt, not just created or or experienced hurt. And you want to bring vengeance. Maybe not 70 times seven, but maybe like 12 times seven. Five times, just five times seven, Lord. That's all I'm asking. And you know, but for God's help, you will not be able to forgive. Maybe there's a situation in your family where you're angry at a sibling because you feel like God or your parents gave them more than you. Again, maybe they legitimately did and they shouldn't have. But the path forward is not proving that. It's asking God to help you forgive and move forward in love. We as Anglicans don't call this an table we call it or an altar we call it a table there's lots of theological reasons but for just today i want you to imagine as johnny's there that he is inviting you to the altar and you don't want to fail what you want to do is call on the name of the lord let's pray Dear God, I thank you so much for how you love the men, women, and children who are here this morning and how you love this church. And you alone know our hearts. You know those places where we might be tempted to want vengeance, where we're holding on to hurt and really just can't forgive. It's too hard for us in our own finite way. Lord, I pray that you would help anyone bound in that sort of anger or hurt to be able to offer themselves to you and ask, like Seth, that you would help them call on the name of the Lord. Lord, I pray, too, that you would grant everyone here a sense of your purpose and joy. I think you took joy over those children of Lamech as they used those gifts. And I think you took joy over Seth and joy over the life you brought. And I pray that you would, particularly this morning, remind anyone here who doubts your life of the plans you have for life for them. In your name, amen. Amen.